Well, good morning. Welcome to our last week of Swipe Up. If you still have no idea what this means, you're in luck. This is our last week, and so you will never have to think about it again. In fact, Instagram is retiring the Swipe Up feature, so you'll likely never come across this again, okay? So uh, we've been talking about a lot of different things, but mostly we've been talking about this idea of how do we live faithfully in a fallen world? How do we live faithfully in a fallen world? And as Dusty mentioned this morning, uh, we're going to be talking about money. And I have noticed, uh, just kind of scanning the room, our attendance is down this morning, so no surprise there. Uh, but the real Christians are here, and we're going to talk about money together. Uh, in his podcast called Revisionist History, uh, author, uh, New York Times bestselling author Malcolm Gladwell um, has a, an episode called My Little Hundred Million. And he tells a story of a uh, philanthropic man named Henry Rowan. And Henry Rowan was the kind of guy who had such exorbitant wealth that he could write a massive check to any institution, uh, any, anything that he wanted to put his name behind or on, he could do that. Uh, Henry Rowan had all kinds of money, and he had all kinds of money when not very many people had all kinds of money. There are a lot of millionaires, there are a lot of billionaires, and there are a lot of wealthy people in our world today. And in the early 90s, late 80s, there were significantly fewer, but Henry Rowan was one of them. And Henry Rowan donates his fortune to a little college called Glassboro State in Glassboro, New Jersey. It was the kind of poor state college that struggled to keep up with the times and struggled to keep its doors open. In fact, at the time of his donation, Glassboro State had an endowment of just $787,000, which sounds like a lot of money, but in truth is barely enough to keep the doors open of an institution like that if it were a difficult year. And Henry Rowan writes a check to Glassboro State University for $100 million. $100 million. That's a lot of money. And it was especially a lot of money in 1992. With that $100 million, Henry Rowan had one wish. I want you to put this towards engineering. And so Glassboro State not only created a new department, but built, a, built an incredible new facility that would instruct engineers. His gift went significantly further with a place like Glassboro State than it would with another prestigious institution. And Henry Rowan could have been the kind of person to have a building named after him on a campus like Harvard or Yale or Stanford, a place that we would all recognize, a household name in the education sector. In 1992, almost no one gave away $100 million, let alone to a college. And after Henry Rowan's gift, there have been some 87 gifts of $100 million or more up until the year 2016 at the time that Malcolm Gladwell reported this. I'm sure it's more than that even today. In, the, in 2013, the billionaire co-founder of Nike, Phil Knight, pledged half a billion dollars to the Oregon Health and Science University in Portland. Not the most prestigious place, but then come three more $400 million gifts from wealthy men. The, the first is this, billionaire John Kluge's gift to Columbia University in 2007. The second is the hedge fund manager John Paulson's gift to Harvard in 2015. And the third time is Phil Knight again giving a $400 million gift to Stanford in 2016. After that, in order, there, here are the universities that get the biggest donations. John Hopkins, Harvard, University of Chicago, Princeton, Tufts, Carnegie Mellon, Cornell, Yale, Penn, Claremont, McKenna, Columbia again, Baylor, USC, Columbia a third time, Michigan, University of California, and Wisconsin. And you could go through all these 87 gifts, and people who write big checks write them to places where their names are going to get noticed and recognized. 
Wealthy elite schools get the biggest donations time and time again. And the point that Malcolm Gladwell is trying to make is that Henry Rowan's 100 million went significantly far, farther at a place like Glassboro State than it ever would at a place like Harvard or Yale. Towards the end of the podcast, Gladwell interviews the president of Stanford University, John Hennessy. Hennessy is responsible for growing the endowment of Stanford University to a measly $22 billion during his tenure. It's one of the wealthiest institutions in America, and it's all tax-free because education. Gladwell proposes a scenario to Hennessy in which he suggests that a wealthy billionaire, someone like a Bill Gates or a Larry Ellison, would come up to him and say, we want to donate $10 billion to Stanford. And Gladwell's question is this, would you ever consider steering him towards the public universities of California who have significantly less resource and educate far more students than you do? The, the public colleges in the state of California educate 238,000 students per year to Stanford's 16,000. Would you say, you know what, we've got $22 billion in the bank, why don't you direct your funds where they will go further? But Hennessy couldn't bring himself to acknowledge any scenario in which he would direct funds elsewhere. In fact, when pressed on the issue of how much is enough, Hennessy couldn't tell Gladwell. Because when it comes to money, there's never enough. We're in this final series, this final week of the series, Swipe Up. And today we talk about money. And today I want to specifically ask this idea, what is faithful money? If we're going to live faithfully in a fallen world, certainly our finances should be a part of that. What does faithful money look like? But money's the sticking point, right? Money's the tricky one because no one likes to be told what to do with their money. We're all really possessive people. No one wants a preacher to stand up here and say, this is what you should go do because we just begin to cringe. We begin to tighten up. But did you know that Jesus speaks more about money than heaven and hell combined? You may have heard that before. It's striking to me every time I hear it. Nothing in this world has, has the potential to be such a disruptive force in our lives as money. It will drive us to dread. It will fill us with foolishness. It will impede our ambition. And when we assign money a purpose it can't provide, we will live lives always chasing and never arriving. Money isn't God, but we so often treat it like it is. And managing our money wisely, faithfully, and humbly is one of the, the most godly things you can do. At this church, we believe God has given us resource to reach the world with the gospel. Full stop. It's why God puts things in our possession. And so whatever God has placed in your hand is to be used to leverage for the kingdom. And until we see money that way, we will never have enough. So how do we live faithfully with money? What does faithful money look like? I think the first place we have to start is what does the Bible teach? And there's three principles I want to draw our attention to in terms of what the Bible teaches. And the first is this. If we want to be faithful with money, we have to get the relationship right. If we want to be faithful with money, we have to get the relationship right. And it's not your relationship with money, but it's your relationship with God. The first principle taught in Scripture when it comes to money is understanding this right relationship, and it is consistent throughout all of the biblical text. In Psalm 24, David says this, the earth is the Lord's 
and everything in it. In 1 Chronicles 29, 14, it says this, but who am I and who are my people that we could give anything to you? Everything we have has come from you. We give you only what you first gave us. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything in this world belongs to him. When talking about money, Jesus most often uses parables, and he tells a parable of three servants. You can read this in Matthew 25. We'll just kind of talk about it this morning. And they're entrusted with the estate of their master. And to one, he gives five, he gives five bags of silver or talents. And, and, and to the second, he gives two bags. And to the last one, he gives one bag. And the text says that each was given according to their ability. The master returns and calls his servants to account, and they were required to display their return on what had been entrusted to them. The first had doubled what had been given to him. Five bags turned into ten. The second doubled what had been given to him. Two bags turned into four. But the third was afraid of losing, and so he buried his in the ground. And he believed things about the master that were not true, and he's dealt with harshly and severely. Friends, this relationship is how we are to understand resource. Everything belongs to God. We are stewards. We manage what belongs to God. We have to understand that this principle, or we will always view money and material things incorrectly. All that we have belongs to Him. He will call for an account for it one day. All of our time, all of our talent, all of our treasure, He will call for an account of it. But Jesus specifically uses money to illustrate his point. Why? Because money is dangerous to faith. Friends, you don't own anything. I don't own anything. But no one wants to be told what to do with money because we make that faulty assumption that what we have belongs to us. That's it. It's ours. And you can't tell me what to do with it. The Bible teaches clearly and consistently that all things belong to God, and it's why we use the term stewardship and not ownership. If you borrow a car from someone else, you wouldn't bat an eye if they gave you some specific instructions like, hey, don't drive over 80, please use premium gasoline, and also make sure you check the tire pressure. Why? Because that belongs to someone else, and we're happy to get in line with their instruction for how to use what belongs to them. Money is a great servant, but a terrible master. If we view ourselves as owners, then we will be owned by our money. I love the line from the band Switchfoot, their lead singer, John Foreman, sings this, you possess your possessions or they possess you. Ownership is a terrible lens to look at money through. Not only will it lead to greed and laziness, gluttony, pride, idolatry, but it also puts this pressure on us to perform, to produce, and to fall into the pattern of the world that we are trying so desperately not to conform to. It's not really the life that we want. Your perspective changes your perception. How you see changes what you see, and when we see this relationship rightly, we won't be tempted to hold on to money so tightly. When we see God as the owner of all things, we see both ourselves and the money we have as his servants. There's a line that my brother and I have adopted. We, we came across it in a sermon we listened to several years ago, and it was in reference to resources. Money, possessions, cars, houses, everything we own, we simply say, it's my dad's. Nice truck, 
thanks, it's my dad's. Hey, I like your house. We love it too. My dad gave it to me. We write a check to somebody who's in need. Oh, I couldn't possibly accept this. You just say, no, I already have. My dad gave it to me to give it away to you. Thanks, it's my dad's. Your perception, excuse me, your perspective will change your perception. Everything attached to your name actually belongs to your dad. He's given it to you to give away to others. We have to get the relationship right because that perspective will change our whole perception of everything God has placed in our hands. The second principle that scripture teaches is this, first fruits. God's instruction to his people has always been to honor him with the resource he's placed in their possession. And the teaching of the tithe is prevalent throughout scripture. Tithe meaning tenth. This has been the habit and practice of Christians for millennia now. It is a way of placing ourselves in orbit around God, who is the owner of all things. So let's look at the biblical precedent for tithing and whether or not it might still matter for today. In Genesis 14, we read a story about a man named Abram who would become Abraham. Abraham had just won a significant battle, something we don't often talk about in his life. He had just conquered an enemy, and he comes before a character named Melchizedek who's simply titled the King of Salem. Melchizedek is a mysterious biblical character. We don't know much about him. But he's talked about with a lot of frequency. And in fact, in Hebrews 7, Jesus himself is identified as a king priest in the line of Melchizedek. Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and Salem means peace. So literally, Melchizedek is the king of righteousness and peace, a fitting title for Jesus more than anyone else. But Abram comes to Melchizedek, and after conquering another group in battle, he gives to him an offering, and Melchizedek pronounces a blessing over him. And in fact, Abram gives a tithe, a tenth of all of his spoils. In Exodus 22, God declares that the firstborn are to be consecrated to him. He says this, you shall not delay to offer the fullness of your harvest. You can also find... uh, References to the tithe in in Numbers 18 and Nehemiah 13, but in Leviticus 27, here's what God says. A tithe of everything from the land, whether the grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. This is the principle of the first fruits. It was the first and the best, and it was part of the law for God's people. They were to bring the, the first tenth of whatever they produced, and they were to consecrate it to God. Then God would bless the remainder, but there was no blessing upon the people unless they brought their tithe. Conceptually, this has been tricky for the church because tithe means tenth. And listen to what Randy Alcorn says. Randy Alcorn has written extensively about the idea of money and Christian giving and generosity. Here's what he says. The meaning of the word tithe is a tenth part. Some people use tithing as a synonym for giving, but it isn't. You can't donate 2% or 4% or 6% of your income Excuse me, you can donate 2% or 4% or 6% of your income, but you cannot tithe it any more than you can whitewash a wall with red paint. It simply doesn't mean what we think. God doesn't just outline a process for tithing. He has an expectation of it. The prophet Malachi announces this, will will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. The whole nation of you, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. 
If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I'd like, where's the sign-up list for that? Where's the church center registration for pouring down blessing from the windows of heaven? I'm, I'm in for that. God has an expectation of our devotion through giving, but that expectation should ignite an anticipation. We're eager now to see what God is doing because we've been faithful. We've placed ourselves in orbit around him rather than our money. Bringing the tithe was an integral expression of worship. Israel worshiped with resource. It was commanded and it was expected of them. And you'll notice throughout the whole Old Testament, there's never a mention of this idea of give. It doesn't say give the tithe, it says bring the tithe. Why? Because you can't give what doesn't belong to you. You can only bring it. My brother, Daniel, loans me a lot of tools, and he leaves a lot of tools at my house when he does projects on things that I'm not competent enough to handle myself, which is frequent. But sometimes he'll call me and say something like, hey, can you bring my nail gun when you come over tonight? And I don't have the right to say, no, man, I think I'm going to hold on to it for a while longer. Why? Because that makes me a thief. (laughs) It's not mine. He doesn't say, hey, can you give me this? Because it doesn't belong to me. He says, hey, can you bring this? Some of us might have the question, isn't tithing legalistic? Isn't it part of this Old Testament law and this old covenant that we're no longer under? Don't we have the ability to like get out of this now? But tithing isn't introduced in the law. Again, tithing, the principle is first introduced with Abram and Melchizedek long before there was ever a law to begin with. But even if we were to think about it as being part of the law, Jesus himself upholds the law, and specifically this aspect of tithing. In Matthew 23, 23, he's challenged by the Pharisees yet again, and he says, you should tithe, and you should also love people well. He affirms the practice. Number three, the posture of believers in the early church was not to give less than a tithe, but radically more. If we're going to say we're no longer under the law, but we're to live out our bold faith in Jesus, as the early church did, captured by the grace of God, then then we should go to the early church and read how they lived. If you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, it says that they shared everything that they had. In fact, all throughout the scriptures in Acts, it talks about this idea of a generous people, a generous church. People would sell off what they had so that no one had any, any need. No one considered that their possessions belonged to them but that all that they had was to be shared. When it comes to this idea of tithing, of generosity, of of giving, we can't do this. The measure can never be another man. You can never measure what you're giving based on what someone else has or is giving. The measure is what is in your hand. It's why we set a percentage. It's why we talk about it that way. It's not an amount. It's a posture. It's a way of presenting yourself to God in worship. Because what might be a radical percentage to me is nowhere close to the amount for you and vice versa. And friends, here's why I think this is such a big deal. Because according to all the metrics and all the statistics, according to Barna and Pew Research and all these different organizations that do research on societies, the more money you have, the less you give. It's just factual. And Here's the other troubling thing for me. I'm a millennial. There's some millennials here in the room today. Millennials, we give less than 1% of our income on average. Now, I know that's not true for everyone, 
And in fact, before I go any further, I know this. This is a generous church. It really is. I'm blown away all the time by the generosity of the people who sit in these seats and worship with us and are a part of this body. In fact, when we were doing our fundraiser for CIY, um, we raised over $15,000 in a day. That's crazy. And it radically offset the cost of students who would go and be discipled in the way of Jesus. But there was a young man in our church. He asked to be anonymous. He's going to stay anonymous for the rest of my life. But even before the fundraiser happened, he walked up, put a check in my hand, and said, hey, don't tell anybody about this. The check was for $1,000. This is a guy who I wouldn't say is in the top 10 earners in our church. This is a guy who I know is a faithful tither to our church. Friends, there are generous people here. I love that I'm a part of this church. I want to see us continue to be generous. My preacher growing up, his name was Von Beeman, and he had a saying, not the same amount, but the same sacrifice. Each of us should approach the throne of God in worship and say, God, what honors you? What can I give that honors you? Another startling statistic from Barna is this, that 40% of professing Christians give away nothing. 40% of professing Christians give away nothing. Now, confession time, I love a good deal, and I love making deals. Uh, in fact, I can remember, I didn't even think about this till just now, Daniel can attest to this, when we were young kids, we would bring our toys, we, we decided we were going to have a toy trade, a toy swap, and uh, I did my best to swindle my little brother out of quite a few uh, nice things. Um, but I love a good deal, I, I love a bargain, I love hunting for deals, and here's the thing, I will never pay full price for anything, I just won't. Uh, if, if you know me, or you can ask my family members, I hate paying full price for something. I want the deal. I want the bargain. Sometimes this causes a significant amount of eye roll from my wife, um, but the ice cream afterwards always helps. We saved money. We can now have some ice cream together. Um, when we were engaged, uh, actually, just before we were engaged, we were thinking about getting married. Um, we sometimes would go to the mall in Joplin, and we would look at rings and just kind of think about it. And so one day we go to Zales in the uh, Joplin Mall, and we walk in, and they have a traveling sale. It's a, it's a set of merchandise that hasn't sold in a specific location, and so it's moving from store to store to store. And as with anything, any major purchase, I'd done my homework, and I know that jewelry has some of the highest markup of any products in our world today. And so I also knew this. I also knew that they couldn't sell what they were showing me somewhere else. So I shouldn't buy it for the price they're asking me to buy it for here. And so Bailey was trying on some rings, and, you know, she's put them on her finger, and they, they try to get you, right? Hold it just right in the light. Here's the mirror. Doesn't that look beautiful? They look at the guy and say, how could you tell her no? Okay. And so she tries on a ring, and it's what she wanted. It's beautiful. Now, I'd never planned on buying her ring in front of her. That was never the deal. But I want a deal, right? I'm going to make a bargain today. That ring's not going to be here tomorrow. It's going to go somewhere else. And so... I began to talk to him. I said, okay, how much does this ring cost? $2,800. Okay, I, I don't know if you know this about me. I had nowhere close to $2,800 in my bank account at the time. Okay, uh, I also knew that I needed to get a wedding band with it. Uh, I also knew that I needed a warranty in case something would happen. And so we began to talk, and the salesman behind the counter, we're having this dialogue, and, and so we're talking about this ring, and 
I said, hey, is there any way you can do a better price on this? And they said, uh, probably not. I said, no, you can. You kind of look at me. No, you can, you can sell this ring to me for less. What? No, I can't. I can't do that. I said, okay, if you can't, your manager can. Can you go get them for me? And so they walked back and they brought the manager out and said, hey, sir, I, I heard you're interested in this ring. I said, yeah, I'm interested in this ring. I also want a wedding band and I want a complete warranty and I want it clean before we leave the store today and I want to walk out of here for less than $1,000. He said, I can't do that. I said, no, you can. Because I know you couldn't sell this ring somewhere else and I also know you won't make any money today unless you sell this ring to me right now. This ring will no longer be product for you to sell and your store won't get credit for it. So you can either sell this ring to me for $1,000 or we're going to walk away and there's actually another jewelry store just around the corner here that we found another ring that we like. So you tell me, manager, $1,000? That ring is on Bailey's finger right now. I didn't spend more than $1,000. We went on a cruise a few years ago and if you've never, not been on a cruise, we love it. It's, it's a great vacation. And we took uh, our, our whole family, Bailey's family, before we had kids. And so uh, Bailey's parents and me and, and, and my wife and her brother and his fiance and um, her other brother and his girlfriend, we all went on a cruise together. And here's, like, cruises are incredible at getting you to spend more money, right? Uh, it's just, it's what they do. It's like, you know, you can, you can go on an all-inclusive vacation for only $499 a person, and then it's like plus $37,000 more while you're on the boat. And so one of the things that they do is they have professional photographers everywhere. And you're encouraged, like, to dress up when you go to dinner and all these kinds of things. And so, you know, you look nice. You want to have pictures taken. It's, it's pictures that you'll probably use as a phone background or hang on your wall or might go out on a Christmas card or something like that. And so they took all kinds of pictures of us. And what you do is you scan your room card and they take all these photos, and, and et cetera, blah, blah, blah. And so we get to the final night. It's about 11 p.m., and we walk down to the photo area, and we get there, and we're looking at the pictures, and we say, oh, these are fun. And there's like, I don't know, between the four rooms that we had, there's like 700-plus pictures. And what they do is they charge you by room. It's like you can buy two pictures for $400, or you can have them all for 1000 right, for the room. And so... It's like, there's no way. I, I'm not paying $1,000 for all of these pictures. Uh, it's just not going to happen. Uh, but we got to look at some of the pictures, and people liked them, and, and Bailey's mom saw some that she really liked. And so, so she's like, hey, Joel, go, go work us a bargain, right? Go, go find us a deal. I said, okay. And so I walked up to the guy selling pictures, and I said, listen, um, we're all in the same family. Um, all of these pictures, you know, a lot of us in the same family are in them together. And so we don't want to pay $1,000 per room. We, we would like to have all of the pictures, you know, of just our family together. So what's the best price you can do for me? Now, in total, this was like $4,000 worth of photos, according to them, right? Um, Kenny Felt would scoff at that, I'm sure. But $4,000 worth of photos. He said, what's the best price you can do for me? He's like, oh, we could probably knock off 10%. I said, listen, man. I got 400 bucks in my wallet right now, $400. I would like our pictures for $400, all four rooms. Can you give those to us? I don't need any prints, just put them on a flash drive. Walgreens is really cheap. I can print them myself. And he just kinda, I can't do that. I can never sell them to you for that. And you know what I'm about to say. Yeah, you can. He said, if you can't, your manager can. Can you go get your manager for me? And so time is ticking away and here's what I know, okay? They cannot sell me those photos after midnight. They can't. 
They're not legally allowed to. Something happens, international waters, it's weird, okay? So they can't. They, they will no longer be able to sell me those photos. And so I'm talking to this manager. Today. I said, listen, I got, I got 400 bucks. I want you to sell me these pictures. He's like, no, man. I'm, I mean, I can maybe do 2,500. He's like, this is a lot of, a lot of pictures. I was like, I know. <laughs> I, I would like it for $400. And so we go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. He comes down to 1,500. I go up to 500. He comes down to 1,200. I stay at 500. He comes down to 1,000. I stay at 500. Finally, he says, okay, $600. I said, no, no. And so we kind of go back and forth. And so we get to this moment. It's 11.54 p.m., six minutes left. And, and here's what I look at him and say. I say, listen, man, you can sell me these pictures for $500 right now or they're worth nothing in six minutes. Okay, here you go, 500 <laughs> So we walked out with a full flash drive of pictures. Now, I'm really proud of these things. I like doing this. But one area we can't do this with is blessing. As true as it is with many things, we, we want to know where the line is. What's the minimum I can give and still get everything that I want? Do you really want to go hunt for God's blessing in the bargain bin? Do you really want to? I don't. I don't want to be the kind of person that say, God, what's the minimum that I can give you and still get everything that I want? Your perspective will change your perception, and how you see it will change how you share it. The, the third principle I want to touch on just briefly is happy hearts. Happy hearts. We're to give in a way that we understand a right relationship. We're to give our, our first fruits, but we're also to give with happy hearts. And so here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. This is actually Paul, by the way. Uh, 2 Corinthians. You must each decide in your heart how much to give, and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. That's why we say, woohoo, we say joy box. Some of us are like, woohoo, but woohoo, because we, we believe this. God loves this kind of person who gives cheerfully, and God will give, excuse me, and God will generously provide all that you need, and then you will always have everything you need, and listen to this, and plenty left over to share with others. Man, you should go read the rest of 2 Corinthians 9 after this morning. There's a lot of good things in there. But here's the point. God loves joyful givers. And it is really hard to bless other people begrudgingly. What we do with our money is a direct expression of what we believe about God. Our finances express our faith. And here's the beautiful promise. That when we learn to trust God this way and live in a posture of generosity, he promises to always give us more than we need. In fact, it's enough to give away to other people. Giving is gasoline on the flames of faith. When you submit your finances to the Lord, he blesses you, not simply in resource, but in the growth of a robust faith. And I often think about it this way. God has blessed me by what he hasn't given me. I used to, man, I used to have this fantasy. I'd, I'd pray and I'd think about it every night. God, just help me win the lottery. And if you do, man, I'll do so many cool things. You've been there? I know I'm not the only one. Now, it's a fun little thought exercise but you realize that more than half of all lottery winners have spent their winnings within the first six months. Almost all of them are headed towards divorce, their children leaving them forever, and total dissatisfaction with their life. God has blessed me by what he hasn't given me. And when I put myself in orbit around him, there are so many blessings that I don't even know I'm receiving. The goal is never to have more money, but to have more margin. 
Margin creates opportunity to continue to be generous towards others and generous towards God. And I would rather live on the 90% that God has blessed than 100% of what I think is mine to possess. Money, faithful money, is also practical. Again, Jesus talks about money often, more than heaven and hell combined, but it's not always in this sphere of giving. Living in a way that honors God means we handle 100% of God's money God's way, not just the 10% that we tithe. Money is a deeply spiritual issue because of what we must, excuse me, money is deeply spiritual, and because of that, we must become wise about how we handle it. We make a lot of money assumptions. We, we assume a lot of things about other people based on the things that they have or the clothes that they wear, whatever it is. We assume a lot about how they handle their money. But the biggest assumption that we make is that we assume that if we have more money, our lives will be better. Friends, it's not true. There's some other myths we believe about money that life is all about accumulation. I should always be after more, but this isn't true. Life is really about consecration. What can I set aside unto the Lord? Another myth we believe is that life, a good life, has stability. We find a lot of security in money, but a good life actually has flexibility. The ability to live on very little, the, the ability to give much of what we have away. Another myth we believe about money, that cheaper is wiser, but wisdom is actually just found in value. If something lasts, it's important to invest in it. Lots of other things we could believe about money, but ultimately, here's one that I think we get tripped up on too, and I, I want to be careful with how I say this, and I want you to hear this correctly. We think the Bible teaches us to be frugal, when in reality, the Bible teaches us to be faithful. And oftentimes, faithfulness incorporates this idea of being frugal, but we shouldn't just stop at this idea of frugality. The Bible doesn't teach us to be frugal, it teaches us to be faithful. And so if, you, if you're wrestling with handling money practically in a way that's wise and honors the Lord, here's, here's five things I want you to think about as you, as you handle money in a practical way. Faithful money should be earned honestly. It should be saved gradually. It should be spent wisely, given generously, and enjoyed carefully. Because money makes you more of what you already are. Jesus says, those who are faithful with little can be trusted with much. But here's what we do. We do this thing called when then. <laughs> when then. When I have this, then I'll do this. God, when I get a raise, then I'll give to the church. God, when I get my tax return, then I will write a check to this charity. God, when then. But this is not the principle Jesus teaches. Jesus says money makes you more of who you already are, and those who are faithful with little can be trusted with much. When we live principled lives and practically with our finances, it provides a great framework to, to support the weight of more blessing from God. He's eager to see us be faithful in the little things. And one of the critical things as Christ followers that we must be really careful with is debt. Debt creates far more problems than it solves. And while the ability to borrow can help us, it is often used as a vehicle for bondage. A lot of people have the question, does God really care about debt? Does it matter how much debt I have? And I would say, of course he does. Because debt forces us into submission other than, to something other than himself. Debt debilitates, debt makes us desperate, 
Debt keeps us from kingdom expansion. Debt forbids us from being as generous as we can be. And here's where I want to make a distinction as well. Not all debt is bad. There are certain types of debt that allow us to accomplish greater things, but really what I'm talking about here is this idea that the large portion of the debt that we carry is simply because we have these insatiable appetites for material things. We make poor decisions, and those poor decisions often lead to our own destruction. It's why this practical wisdom on handling our finances is so important. We are a consumer culture. The average American household carries $145,000 in consumer debt, a number that has tripled since the year 2000. It's the pattern of our world that we are encouraged to copy and conform to. We're buying things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't know. So if you're struggling with debt or formulating a plan to handle money practically, man, we would love to help you with that. All of us on our pastoral team would be happy to have a conversation and point you in some directions that would help you have more flexibility. I love Dave Ramsey. Many of you have read his material and been through his stuff, but let me just say this, in all Christian love, Dave Ramsey isn't Jesus, okay? Like some of us are convinced the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the total money makeover, all right? Dave Ramsey is an excellent thinker in the world of money. But it's more than about than just debt. Because even if we can't technically afford something, that doesn't necessarily mean we should buy it. Because we have a chief ambition. We began our series this way. Our chief ambition comes from the Westminster Catechism, and it says this, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. How we spend money directly affects this. Matthew 6, 19-21, Jesus says this, Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them, and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy or thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Your heart follows money. It's never the other way around. So wherever you want your heart to be, you have to send your money there first. Some good questions to ask yourself to see if you have faithful money are these. What happens when you get the more that you're looking for? What are steps one, two, and three? Second question would be this, who benefits from your life being blessed? If the answer to those questions ends at the destination of me, then I would suggest that like me, you're still learning what it means to be a faithful steward of what belongs to God. He isn't interested in blessing what doesn't bless others. Again, your perspective changes your perception. If you still see it all as yours, you'll never stop directing towards the me, directing money towards the me monster. But if you believe it all belongs to God, it is a joy to direct yourself and what he has placed in your possession towards his purposes. Finally, faithful money is purposeful. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. Faithful money means we are not compelled to use our money for comfort or convenience, but for kingdom. We seek that first, always. Living principled and practical lives when it comes to our finances. But ultimately, there's one final piece we have to recognize. We must live purposefully. I remember Dusty saying this in a sermon several months ago, that God loves to pour into pipes, not pails. He wants your life to be a conduit not a collecting pool. 
It allows us to lead a life of leverage in the way of the gospel. Jesus tells a really unique story in Luke 16. We won't read it. We'll just talk about it for a minute. But he tells a story about a man who was managing money for another wealthy person. And he had done a terrible job of it. In fact, the text says that he had been dishonest with the wealthy man's money. And so he knows he's about to lose his job and he begins to worry about his situation. He thinks, I don't have the skill or ability to go do something else. I don't have the physical stamina to go and labor in the field. What am I going to do? So he goes out and he goes to, to people who owe the wealthy man money and he begins to do something pretty shady and dishonest. He says to one man, how much do you owe the master? And he says, 800 vats of olive oil. He says, quick, change that to 400. And then he says to another man, how much do you owe the master? I owe him 100 bushels of wheat. Quick, change that to 800. And Jesus says the wealthy man could not help but admire the shrewdness of the manager because he used his possessions and material wealth to get in the good graces of others. This is not how we expect Jesus to respond to this manager. We expect rebuke and ridicule. And Jesus will. He, he says, if you're faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in large ones. But if you're dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. Jesus' admiration is not affirmation. But what he does say is this, that the children of darkness are better at using their money for the purposes they want to accomplish than the children of light. And friends, if we're to think about money faithfully, we need to think about it purposefully. What has God placed in my hand? to accomplish his purpose in the world. I grew up in Springfield, Illinois. And in Springfield, um, I, I went to a church called Westside Christian Church. My, my dad has been there for 25 plus years now. And, and, Spring, and, and Westside just recently um, did a building campaign. They're building a new worship venue. Um, their church is growing. The, the church, um, when I was there, was about 1,500 people, and it's now nearly 4,000 every week. It's crazy. Really cool how God has grown that group. And they did these giving pledges and commitments and there's an old couple, old farming couple in the church. In fact, they lived not far from where I grew up. Their names were Ed and Shirley. And Ed and Shirley decided to commit their entire estate to the building campaign. They didn't have any surviving family members. And so they just said, whatever we have, it, it will go to the church after we die. And just about a year and a half ago, Ed passed away. And not long, as is often the case, Shirley followed him to the grave. And so this resource was signed over to the church. And, and you know, my dad's on staff, and so he gets to hear about some really cool details. And so at the time, they said, did you know Ed and Shirley gave more than a million dollars to building campaign? These poor little farmers who lived out, <laughs> way outside of town, didn't have much buildings weren't in great shape, didn't drive nice cars, more than a million dollars. Isn't that crazy? Come to find out, the total value of those assets, because they had appreciated it so much, was nearly two million dollars. Two people that you would never expect to have that kind of money. Two people who got the relationship right, who lived practically, who lived faithfully, and ultimately decided to use and steward their resource purposefully. They didn't fix a figure. They presented a posture. Here's the kind of people we want to be. Friends, your perspective changes your perception. How you see it.
will change how you share it. God promises, promises to bless us when we're faithful with what belongs to him. We're going to worship Jehovah Jireh once again. Would you stand with me?